The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Hello, I'm Dr. Andres Rich. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidia, PGTA, with one of the world's uh, leading experts, Dr. Antonio Capalbo. Dr. Capalbo received his Bachelor of Science degree in Biotechnology from University of Rome, uh, La Sapienza, and his PhD magna cum laude in human genetics at the Catholic University of Sacred Heart of Rome in 2011. He also holds a master's degree in epidemiology and statistical data analysis. Interestingly, he first worked as a clinical embryologist for a number of years, and then he focused on pre-implantation genetics for the past decade, a little over the past decade. He's currently the chief genomics officer at Juno Genetics, which is one of the largest reproductive genetics labs in the world. And he's the author of a large number of papers on PGT and one of the most well-known scientists in, in this field. Dr. Capalbo, um, thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be, with, to be here with us today for this super important topic. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm just going to start with a little bit of a personal question. Um, why, why pre-implantation genetics? Of all the things a biologist could focus on, um, you've dedicated most of your life to this field. What, what about it is so interesting to you? Oh, well, um, I think because I, I think it's a perfect combination of different disciplines, like including embryology and genetics. And, um, and uh, it is also uh, very much applied as a, as a, a discipline. And uh, you can really uh, touch your, with your hands what, uh, what you can bring and deliver to a subpopulation of, of patients suffering from infertility. And uh, and yeah, on the research side, I also think and I find this very attractive because I mean we we can study uh, biological processes that are unique uh, to the cells that we handle, such as gametes and pre-implantation embryos, where uh, very amazing things happen in in, in the genome. And uh, I think we are really uh, I'm really proud and really lucky to to be uh, in this field. I I, I couldn't agree more. Um, there is there is clearly a, an increasing trend in both interest and utilization of PGTA, um, and with that, there has been uh, we have seen many new papers being published about not only the scientific uh, specifics of the of the process of PGTA itself and its accuracy, but also its usefulness, even some of the ethics behind it all. Let's start at the very beginning. What is, in your opinion, the main goal? of PGTA in IVF treatments? Why do we do PGTA to begin with? Well, I think we are uh, dealing with the period of life, of the life cycle, where uh, most of aneuploidies is the period of the life where most uh, we have a, the biggest representation of aneuploidies in all our life cycles, so, which is the pre-implantation window of development where no negative selection against aneuploidies um, is already happening. And um, therefore, we all know very well that most of our embryos are affected by aneuploidies, which are incompatible with life. And that if not uh, deselected, then they, we, they will cause many negative outcomes on our patients. So I think the, the main goal of uh, any PGTA uh, strategy should be to deselect those aneuploidies that are meiotically inherited, that are those aneuploidies that are uh, coming primarily from chromosomal segregation error during female meiosis that are supposed to be present throughout all the cells of the developing embryos in vitro. So this is the main uh, objective of any uh, PGTA strategy, deselecting fully aneuploid embryos. Now, uh, we have uh, a large experience, and we also had a lot of studies over the last decades 
addressing the topic of aneuploidies in pre-implantation embryos, and in particular, uh, also about mechanism. We had great uh, advance in the field of basic research about meiotically derived aneuploidies over the last decades. Uh, we have seen that uh, aneuploidies, um, of course, um, affected by uh, female age, advancing female age, and uh, we also uh, were able to understand what are the basic mechanisms that are leading to aneuploidies during female meiosis and how they relate with female age. Uh, there were seminal papers in the last years describing all the different mechanisms at different uh, age uh, of the woman where we contributed and that uh, are supporting even further the application of PGTA in, in IVF. Now, these cells, these aneuploidies that are coming uh, from meiosis, they are, are supposed to be present throughout all the cells of the ensuing embryos. So they are not posing that many challenging from a diagnostic perspective because, um, I mean, we're not really uh, biased on whether we collect the, the samples for our analysis from a blood cyst because the aneuploidies are supposed to be present in all the cells. And also, uh, this type of aneuploidies, particularly trisomies and monosomies, that are the, our main target, uh, they are associated with very clear uh, clinical outcomes, negative clinical outcomes, meaning plantation failure, miscarriages, and in rare cases, also aneuploid conceptions. So this information, this knowledge, provide clear elements of clinical utility for our patients because uh, every geneticist in the world knows uh, which type of trisomy or, or monosomy um, uh, correspond to, to which outcome uh, if we transfer those embryos. And therefore, uh, we have clear uh, uh, useful information to counsel with our patients. Now, there has been also uh, sometimes some misconception uh, in this regard. Uh, you know, many opponents of the GTA claiming that aneuploidy is going often through self-correction during pre-implantation development. However, uh, this is not supported by the evidence. Um, we have many studies also addressing this issue, and uh, we have seen that uh, aneuploidies that rather than meiotically derived, they uh, are almost always fixed throughout developments and almost never go through self-correction. Indeed, this is a me measurable outcome, the self-correction event. We can look at the rate of uniparental diatomies, for instance, at the plastic stage and try to get an estimation about the uh, truth self-correction event that's happening in the pre-implantation windows. And this was uh, indeed one of the studies from uh, RMA in New Jersey back in 2014, measuring uh, UPDs at the plastic stage on thousands of embryos and reporting an ex extremely low rate of uh, UPDs at the plastic stage, supporting that meiotic aneuploidies, once they are present into the gamete first and zygote and embryo later, they are uh, fixed throughout development. So um, I think that uh, in general, any good strategy for PGTA should focus on deselecting all those aneuploidies that are meiotically inherited. And um, uh, by doing so, um, it is uh, quite clear that um, the outcomes of an IVF treatment cycles can be improved at many levels, and particularly for patients of advanced maternal age, when the incidence of aneuploidies is for sure higher. Um, there is also a lot of challenge, uh, even today, when trying to understand what are the outcomes that can be improved throughout PGTA, and I think this, this is worth of a, uh, more discussion. Uh, in particular, we know that, I mean, PGTA is a, is a diagnostic uh, test and uh, for sure it's not a treatment, uh, it's not a cure for embryos, meaning to say that if embryos are aneuploid to start with, by doing PGTA we're not going to have a euploid embryos or to cure these embryos. We can only detect uh, those that are aneuploid and avoid the transfer of these embryos and all the negative consequences associated with that. So in terms of clinical outcomes and what we can improve with PGTA, I think that uh, should be made clear that live birth rates are intention to treat or per cycle is something that cannot be improved by any PGTA treatment because we are not creating uh, euplot embryos. Uh, just for an example, if we have a patient of 45 years and she's producing three aneuploid embryos, that patients will not get pregnant even if we do PGTA or not. Uh, the benefit in that case, the clinical utility in that case, would be to avoid the transfer of all these embryos that may then uh, uh, cause implantation failures, 
uh, and uh, misguided gist. Now, uh, selecting euploid embryos for transfer is and has been proven to, to improve the clinical outcomes for transfer, plantation rate, lowering the miscarriage rate, and uh, there are also many uh, studies supporting that in many clinical contexts and settings, this approach can also be cost-effective and can reduce time to pregnancy. So um, I think that if properly done and properly uh, delivered, this type of technology can really help patients at many levels, particularly uh, those that are of advanced maternal age and that can expect to have a higher rate of aneuploidies in their embryos. You, um, you mentioned um, a key thing at the very end there, um, if properly performed and delivered. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, so like, like for every other diagnostic or screening test, accuracy is obviously very important. And validating that a testing platform is accurate is, is key. How accurate is PGTA today, for example, in the case of, of your lab, of Juno Genetics, um, and how is that accuracy measured in terms of positive, negative, predictive value? How are those determined? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, uh, this is, I think, the main issue uh, behind PGTA uh, because um, we, we have experienced a lot of variability from center to center. And uh, this is emerging even more uh, today uh, when, I mean, next generation sequencing was implemented in many laboratories and uh, the reporting of aneuploidies was, uh, I would say, very subjective to any to every lab uh, working with this technology. And also PGTA in general has been uh, a strange field uh, of diagnostic application where many technologies were deployed clinically without uh, the proper level of validation in some cases. Um, there are different ways that where we can validate the accuracy of our technologies. I think the first uh, analysis that can be done is to validate the technology with cell lines of known karyotype, so trying to uh, include as more as uh, cell lines with different aneuploidies as possible. Um, one of the um, a uh, clear limitation of this is that we don't have cell lines for all type of aneuploidies. So in any case, this approach will be limited to the availability of uh, aneuploid cell lines that you can work with. Uh, and also another big limitations on validating technologies only on cell lines is that uh, this is not the cell type that we're going to treat in the clinical practice because uh, when we work on cell lines, we have a kind of experimental model that is very stable, very reproducible. It's made up of cells that we count and we know in quantity. Um, while when we're working on the clinical setting, we have much more variability in terms of cellularity of the trophectoral biopsies, in terms of the quality of the embryo and of the cell biopsy that we sampled. So the, 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 the data and validation of cell lines are a good starting a point for validation, but it shouldn't be, the, the, the whole validation of a technology shouldn't be limited on that. The second step that we have to validate our uh, diagnostic assays for PGT is to do rebiopsies of embryos uh, that were previously, uh, that previously undergone to PGTA and see what is the concordance toward uh, the remaining biopsies of the same embryo. Um, this is something that is not uh, that not every laboratory uh, usually perform in the uh, validation workflow, but can give us some kind of positive and negative predicting barrier toward different type of aneuploidies when we uh, look at the embryo biopsy level. Um, but still, uh, this is also not the, the final step of a proper validation, I think. I think uh, what we are all interested in is to see what is the, the, the prediction of our assay towards clinical outcomes? And therefore, uh, ideally, uh, every laboratory should perform a kind of clinical validation of the accuracy of the assays in a kind of what is a blinded non-selection trial where we take the biopsy, we can uh, uh, save these biopsies for later analysis and transfer the embryos blinded without, with, with an unknown aneuploidy status. And after observing and recording the clinical outcomes, at that point, we can do a blinded analysis of these biopsies that were saved before and see how many times an aneuploid diagnosis corresponds to a negative outcomes 
uh, or how many times uh, your product diagnosis predict indeed implantation. So of course, uh, Juno was the pioneer in this type of study and uh, the TX et al. publication was, I think, the largest experience of prospective non-selection trial today, uh, showing that indeed when we see uh, an aneuploidy of whole chromosome, aneuploidy in a trophector biopsies, uh, none of the embryos that were assigned to this type of aneuploidy then uh, resulted in an implantation or a sustained implantation of live birth. Uh, this is the best way to, to, to have good data to cancer patients when uh, working in a diagnostic settings and uh, giving them uh, actual and good data in order to take decision whether to uh, do or not to do a specific procedure. Then another um, type of validation, of clinical validation that is of course always useful, is to run randomized control clinical trials where uh, we can assess in this case not really the accuracy of our technologies, but uh, the uh, clinical gain that we can get from the application of a specific technology. In other words, we can investigate uh, which type of patients would benefit from doing PGTA as a whole, and also um, what are the clinical outcomes and what is the extent of improvement in the different clinical outcomes that we may expect from the application of PGTA in clinical practice. Um, for what concerns randomized clinical trials, I think uh, in the last years we had um, few efforts being done on this side, and uh, we should for sure make some uh, some additional efforts in order to bring uh, some uh, more data. Uh, also, because the few that were run in the past uh, were uh, really severely biased by many different uh, flaws in the experimental design, like applying PGTA in young and good prognosis patient population or using methods that were not, uh, and PGTSA that were not previously uh, validated based on the criteria and the steps that we discussed before. So I think, yes, going forward, uh, more RCTs are welcome in our field to further get some kind of um, insights and good data and to understand uh, the clinical gain that we can uh, obtain from PGTA in different settings and with different patient populations. But from a purely diagnostic perspective, I think having non-selection uh, trials being performed is uh, already uh, a very good step and a very good level of evidence in order to, to, to cancel our patients and to make sure that our assays are working um, as we desire in clinical settings. So um, my, my understanding for what you're saying um, is essentially a non-selection validates that the test is true, that you're saying that, that, that the reality is what you're saying it is. The RCT is then what determines whether that test actually helps anyone, um, whether those results actually make life better for anybody else. Um, I, I would ask you in terms of... Um, Accuracy and uh, and the PGTA test itself working well and giving you a good result. Um, what is this determined by? Is it the software used to analyze the results? Is it the um, the, the library of um, of amplicons we have? Is it the embryologist technique when biopsying the embryo? Um, what what contributes to a test actually being accurate? I think is is a combination of all these factors. Uh, and I yes, I mean is first of all how the assay uh, was designed and how it was uh, validated and implemented over time, how uh, the experimental procedures uh, keep constant and standardized over time. And, um, uh, and yeah, I mean, and, uh, and all the, 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 those type of upgrades that we, and constant improvement that we try to to, to do every every day in our in our job. Of course, it also when working in PGTA is extremely important. On, at least in my in my experience, to have a constant relationship and uh, with the with the IVF laboratories, trying to also to educate them and to provide feedback about how they do things in the IVF laboratory, which is an essential part of also that is contributing to the final outcomes. Uh, so uh, what uh, personally I've been investing more a lot of time was to to try to to have a very 
tight collaboration and uh, constant relationship with the IVF laboratories and people involved in embryo biopsies in order to try to keep everything standardized and constant over time. Of course, these require efforts, require time, uh, require resources, but uh, it is one of the, of the components that contribute to the final accuracy of, of any um, PGTA assay. About about that part specifically, you, as we were saying before, you yourself have have worked as a clinical embryologist, right, for a number of years. Um, this, uh, I understand, affects to some degree how much how well you understand the process, probably better than most other geneticists out there. Um, do you wish there was more cross interaction between embryologists and the genetics lab? Like you just said, uh, cooperation is important in terms of getting good results, um, but also from a from a scientific or even academic production point of view, um, between the people actually handling the embryos and doing the biopsies and then the people interpreting those biopsies um, in the genetics lab. Yeah, I think, as I said, I think it's is essential. And uh, I can tell you that... Um, working in this field for many years uh, in the genetic laboratory, if you have, um, um, I mean, if you have KPIs and if you monitor carefully uh, the results uh, in your laboratory, you can immediately see once a new embryologist has been included into the <laughs> biopsy <laughs> sheet. So, I mean, it's something that, that, that really, really matters. And, uh, and that uh, it's really important that also everyone is aware of, it, of this and that uh, we keep working together towards having, having the best results, having the lowest non-result rate, but also having uh, uh, good, good quality uh, results in order to make sure that when we call an aneuploidy, this aneuploidy is, uh, is there and, uh, and uh, is, not, uh, is not artifact or technical variation as it may happen. Then another very essential part of our job is trying to uh, do validations, to understand our assays, to see uh, what, what are the type, the different type of aneuploidies in the broad spectrum of aneuploidies that we may detect that are worth being classified, that are worth being reported, and that are trustable uh, when, when, when we report them. Based on based on what we've discussed so far, what is your opinion on some of the recent papers we've seen suggesting that we should be transferring aneuploid embryos and actually reporting good results, uh, quote unquote, good results from from these supposedly aneuploid embryos being transferred? Well, this is this is I think an issue that um, starts with a complete misunderstanding of the different type of aneuploidies and how they are reported. Uh, as we discussed before, we see that primarily the, the, the most important, the most common aneuploidies that we find in embryos are those derived from chromosomal segregation error during female meiosis, and these are uniform throughout the embryos. While we may have, in some cases, also some aneuploidies that arise during mitotic segregation error during preimplantation development, leading to uh, mosaicism in embryos, where we have um, a combination of euploid and aneuploid cells being present uh, into the same embryos. And this status is usually known as chromosomal mosaicism. So the big issue that we experience in data reporting uh, in the last years and in some papers was that um, many adults were not clear about which type of aneuploid embryos they transferred and which one resulted in a, in a, a live birth. So uh, we have recently looked very carefully at the literature, including the uh, recent Glacier publications that we all know he is an opponent of PGTA and he was trying to deliver this concept that aneuploid embryos make babies. And uh, if, we, if we scrutinize uh, carefully uh, the outcomes and the clinical outcomes of, of their clinical experience, you can clearly see that almost all the embryos that were uniformly aneuploid, they went transferred in their clinic, they failed to make a baby. They result in implantation failure, but most importantly, they had a very high miscarriage rate. So it, it doesn't seem that this practice was uh, for any benefit of the patients, but it seems that this practice induced uh, harm to the patients instead of uh, giving them any chance of delivering. Uh, now, in the... Um, 
in the non-selection paper that we discussed before from, from Juno and D.B. Ademe, uh, we observed that all of the aneuploid embryos affected by uniform aneuploidies, they fail to implant or make a baby. While if we look at the data from the Glacier Clinic, the Barad et al. publication, you can see that 99.1% of them, so 105 out of the 106 uniform aneuploid embryos that went transferred, did not make a baby. And 85% of them resulted in a miscarriage. So I think today uh, we have um, very clear evidence about the fact that embryos that are uniformly aneuploid do not make a baby. They are little if transferred back to patients. And uh, I think, and I can bet with you, that it doesn't exist any medical treatment in the broad field of medicine where you can accept a medical practice with a failure rate of as high as 98-99% and with a risk for adverse event as high as 86% for, I mean, miscarriage rate in this case. So I think today uh, we have uh, very, uh, very clear data about the fact that uniform aneuploid embryos shouldn't be considered for, uh, for transfer. A different discussion come with mosaicism, and I'm sure uh, this will be your next question. Uh, that is indeed my next question. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you about that because you spoke before about things that should and should not be reported and kind of where we throw that into the mix. Um, and that also, I think, has affected a lot of the outcomes of studies in the past where mosaicisms were either had potential to have a baby and were not transferred for hindering the success of PGTA, or the other way around, right? Counted as aneuploid and then being transferred later on, showing that PGTA, quote-unquote, didn't work well. Um, so I wanted to talk about this sort of hot topic of mosaicism. Um, there's been a lot of debate about this, whether to transfer or not, um, whether we should be differentiating between low and high-grade mosaicism and even where that threshold would be. Um, can you talk about mosaicism in general, and most importantly, what is your practice regarding mosaic results, um, and what is your opinion on the reproductive potential of, of these embryos? Oh, well, thanks for this question. That allows me to make a little bit of uh, clarity on this very uh, debated topic, indeed, in our field. Um, I mean, mosaicism, as we, we all know well, in this case, we are discussing about First of all, chromosomal mosaicism, which is uh, defined as the presence of karyotypically distinct cell lines within the same embryo. And uh, uh, it's a matter of fact that, the, that, that when, when we have a true mosaic embryos, this poses some challenges for, for a diagnostic application and for us being into the laboratory, as it happens also at other st developmental stages, such as prenatal diagnosis, where we, we, we may have um, issues coming from the presence of uh, mosaicism in an embryo or in a pregnancy. Now, there are, I think, some very important uh, premise to make. Uh, that is, uh, first of all, uh, when dealing with this topic of mosaicism, we always need to acknowledge that uh, for what concerns mosaicism in IVF pregnancies, we have seen that mosaicism is not increasing in IVF derived pregnancies as, as compared to spontaneous conceptions, we know that mosaicism is not cured at kind of uh, low rates in pregnancies, like 0.3% of human pregnancies are affected by mosaicism, and there is no difference uh, from IVF and spontaneous conception, meaning to say that um, neither the infertility states or the technologies in IVF that we use are supposed to increase the risk towards mosaicism in our, in our pregnancies. And this is extremely important because it doesn't uh, put on us too much pressure in order to, to, to increase our uh, sensitivity for the detection of mosaicism in PGTA cycles uh, because the rate of mosaicism in our pregnancies is similar to spontaneous conception. There is another point to consider that is very important uh, before uh, going through this topic, that is that um, in, in, in embryology, we don't have any kind of phenotype phenotype that can tell us if an embryo is at higher risk of having mosaicism. Like uh, what happened in prenatal diagnosis, you may have some ultrasound findings or some um, uh, 
clinical parameter that may uh, tell you that there is an increased risk for mosaicism. You can look and go more in deep to this uh, phenomenon into the embryo. But in, 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 in PGTA, we don't have any kind of, of parameter that can tell us if an embryo is at increased risk of developing or having mosaicism. And finally, uh, most important point is that we really lack some reliable reference model to establish our analytical metrics toward mosaicism classification and PGTA cycles. Uh, in other words, it's very difficult to have uh, good samples in order to develop our assays for defining the mosaicism thresholds. So what is commonly done in PGTA laboratory, we're trying to set thresholds and criteria for reporting mosaicism is again to work on cell lines. Cell lines mimicking mosaicism, where we can mix up normal and abnormal cells in different proportion and trying to establish some uh, thresholds for calling a different type of mosaicism. This type of analysis works well when we are in a very reproducible, stable environment like the one of cell lines. But when we try to apply this criteria or to transfer this criteria to the clinical practice, this doesn't work that well because we know that the variability in the cellularity, in the clinical, in the quality of the trophectomy biopsies uh, is very different from one sample to another. And therefore, transferring all this content from, from the cell lines to the biopsies is extremely challenging and should be considered before implementing such type of reporting criteria in, into the clinical setting. And this type of challenging also explains uh, the big uh, issue and consistent data reporting that we experienced over the last years with some clinics reporting 2% of the embryos being mosaic and other clinics supporting up to 40% of human embryos being mosaic. Of course, it's not the biology which is changing from one clinic to another. It's just a pure matter of how we interpret the results and uh, uh, the, the, the signal that we obtain from our PGTA experiments. It is very and extremely subjective. Uh, from one laboratory to another. Now, uh, I would say that, that also in this context of reporting mosaicism, uh, PGT was again uh, an exception as compared to many other diagnostic settings because in, in genetics and in genomics in particular, uh, we have a broad consensus that genetic findings should be reported only when they are associated with very clear uh, outcomes that are going to improve uh, patient's care. So it, there is really a huge consensus in genomics today that we should be reporting findings, not because we observe them, but because they are linked with clinical utility. So in other words, I think that at the beginning of the story, when NGS was implemented in our laboratories and we start seeing intermediate copy number, we were not I mean, under the big pressure of reporting this result, because we, we did not know, we didn't know what any, any elements of clinical utility that was associated with this finding, if there were technical variation, if they were associated with thrombosizes, and even if it is thrombosizes, what is it meaning in terms of clinical outcomes uh, for the patients? So the, the, the approach was different depending on, uh, from one laboratory to another, Start, some laboratories start reporting mosaicism. At the beginning, as soon as I start seeing this intermediate copy number in, in NGS experiments, other laboratories prefer to avoid reporting mosaicism and to start uh, developing good data in prospective non-selection study about what is uh, the clinical uh, utility of this funding in our, in our setting. And um, as you know, uh, the first study is looking at the reproductive potential of mosaic embryo transfer in a retrospective way. They have highlighted the kind of slight reduction of the reproductive potential of mosaic embryos as compared to the euploid embryos. But these studies, I think, that were severely biased by the uh, selection of patients. There was a strong selection bias in the patient population where mosaic embryo transfer outcomes were measured because as it happens in the clinical workflow, we know that euploid embryos are transferred as first option, while mosaic embryos, when reported, they are transferred as last option. So what happens in the, when looking at these outcomes in a retrospective way is that we are going to measure uh, mosaic embryo transfer outcomes only on those patients failing to get pregnant with previous euploid embryo transfer. And in this way, we are selecting a poor prognosis patient population where we assess and investigate the reproductive potential of mosaic embryos. 
So what we did in our experience was uh, to avoid reporting these findings um, up to a certain level. So first of all, trying to understand what is the predictivity of a mosaic finding a clinical trophetory biopsies by doing multifocal analysis on blastocyst donated for research. And what we, have, we observed in a nutshell was that up to 50% of copy number variation, the predictivity toward an aneuploidy into the remaining portion of the embryos was similar to that of a euploid uh, classification. Uh, while once we move to the high range mosaic or to the fully aneuploid spectrum, then we observe uh, similar uh, predictivity toward the aneuploidy status of the embryo. So with this information in our hands, we ran a prospective non-selection trial where mosaicis was not reported up to 50% of variation. And in this way, we could uh, we could get some, some good data and some unbiased um, uh, outcome about the reproductive potential of mosaic embryo in, in the context of a non-selection clinical trial. So the first experience uh, that we we had uh, in the past uh, in my previous in my previous laboratory was uh, very clear. I think it was showing that uh, euploid and low putative mosaic or moderate moderate putative mosaic between thirty to fifty percent of variation they had exactly the same uh, clinical outcomes in terms of implantation rate, biochemical pregnancy loss, miscarriage rate, or live birth rate. We didn't observe any difference any statistically significant difference in the neonatal or obstetrical outcomes and also uh, the level of um, mosaicism for the, those cases that we could follow up in the pregnancies was exactly the same. I mean, we observe only one single case of true mosaicism in our prenatal follow-up that was uh, coming from the transfer of a euploid and the transfer. So um, it seems that when looking at these outcomes in a in, in the context of a prospective non-selection design, mosaic embryos uh, or disputative mosaic embryos were uh, performing exactly the same as euploid embryos. Uh, more recently, uh, also Juno and DVRMA um, have presented the outcomes from a prospective non-selection trial at the CRM in 2022. And uh, as you know, Juno has even a more powerful technology in theory to predict mosaicism into the embryos because it's not only relying on intermediate copy number analysis, but it's also uh, complementing this information with genotyping uh, data. But nevertheless, even if this technology is also supposed to be uh, more sensitive for true mosaicism classification, when uh, we look at the data in the context of non-selection uh, non design, uh, we still observe that embryos that were reported were predicted to have a whole chromosome mosaicism perform exactly the same as non-mosaic embryos uh, in terms of sustained implantation rate and also in terms of miscarriage rate. So now we have two independent studies that were and trials that were performed and that they are concordant in supporting the fact that mosaic embryos, when looking prospective non-selection trials, they uh, I mean, reporting mosaicism provides no elements of clinical utility when we look this carefully and properly in prospective non-selection trial. There is uh, also independent evidence coming, like um, different studies that are comparing the outcomes from different genetic providers are also showing that uh, the levels of mosaicism being reported from different genetic providers is extremely different. And this affects the total number of euclid embryos that are, at the end, available for every uh, given IVF cycles. And ultimately, this can, of course, lower the chance of pregnancies uh, to get pregnant on a, a cumulative or intention-to-treat analysis. This is, for instance, the experience of the Eugene group that was presented by Mina Popovich uh, at the Asheville. Uh, showing that indeed reporting mosaicism remain very difficult to justify means only uh, going to lower the chance of pregnancies of patients to get pregnancy with a, with a IVF treatment cycles without any elements of uh, clinical utility. So now, uh, once we have established that reproductive potential of these embryos with low range mosaicism, I would say, are not. Um, I mean, are not different as compared to euploid ones. 
uh, the question can be uh, if they have any additional risk in terms of mosaicism for these pregnancies. And uh, even here, we have now the experience of thousands of putative mosaic embryos being transferred in the past. And the, the, the likelihood and the risk that, that, that the mosaic pregnancies would originate from one of these uh, transfer uh, is extremely low. It's similar to that that we expect in nature. And uh, we have no evidence today about any increased risk of having a mosaic pregnancies following the transfer of a putative uh, low-range mosaic embryo. So what we are missing here, because this is only, uh, again, retrospective experience, clinical experience, is uh, properly designed prospecting trials where the same uh, criteria and methodologies for follow-up during the prenatal period will be applied to the transfer of both euploid and putative mosaic embryos in order to investigate if there is any increased risk of mosaicism or mosaic pregnancies coming from the transfer of embryos that were um, designated as putative mosaic at the pre-implantation stage or that were euploid. But at the moment, uh, we don't have any uh, new data to discuss on this. Yeah, that would be, um, that'd be a great study. Um, Another, you kind of hinted at this in your in what you just said, but there was also another very recent study. Uh, I think it was published in FNS, um, looking at life birth rates from 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 embryos tested at four different PGTA labs. Um, this was a retrospective study, I believe. Um, I, I'm sure you've read it. What what do you think about this, and what could be reasons for the very disparate results in terms of um, different life birth rates? between these different labs? What, what should we do about these, these big differences between labs? Well, I think that this, is, uh, this study is a perfect summary of everything we have commented so far <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> and uh, it's indeed showing that um, the PGT laboratory can really uh, make a difference um, in the overall outcomes of an IVF treatment cycles with PGTA. And uh, this is not a surprise. I think this is something that, that, that we should expect uh, because as we have good practice and different practice and success rate in, in, uh, among different IVF laboratories and clinics, uh, we should also expect that the performance, the diagnostic performance of different laboratories may vary. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, it's a... Um, it's extremely important, I think, that reproductive endocrinologists understand the implication of this study, that all, not, not all PGTA laboratories should be considered equal. And I think that is in the responsibility of every uh, doctor also to uh, go deep dive in this topic and uh, trying to understand what are the main difference, the main difference in terms of validation of every platform being uh, proposed in the market. This is a responsibility that, that every doctor should, should really consider in their uh, decision-making. And uh, I think we have mounting evidence today showing that uh, there are indeed significant differences uh, among different PGTA laboratories and providers. Yeah, very. I, I mean, I found the, the paper very interesting. Um, of course, they didn't... Um, Tell us in the paper which lab was lab A, B, C, or D, um, but it was um, it was definitely a very very striking difference up to up to I think it was close to twenty percent differences in life birth rate. Um, yeah, but also in the unemployed rate, and this is not uh, uh, this is also a parameter that may significantly impact with the uh, outcomes on a on a per cycle. Base, no? Right. I think it's important what you what you mentioned in a previous in a previous point you were making that cl clearly biology didn't change, right? It, it, it's yeah. the, the sample of embryos is not dramatically different or unlikely to be dramatically different from those tested in one lab to a different lab, and so there's something um, in the process of testing or interpreting the results um, or both that, that that dramatically changes the outcome when we know that. The reproductive potential for all of those embryos was sort of as close to the highest one as they could be, right? I um I finally I like to ask um all, all of our guests on the podcast about their view of the future. Um, it, it seems PGTA 
at Juno specifically and many other places is, is remarkably accurate and becoming very, very reliable. So what is what is next for reproductive genetics laboratories? What are some of the future areas in the field um, that you are most excited about? And aside from what you're most excited about, what do you think are the two or three biggest challenges that your field is facing in the next few years? Well, I think that um, one of the great uh, improvements in our PGTA assays as compared to the uh, previous years is the incorporation of genotyping uh, information into our assay. And this may um, provide an independent uh, signal to analyze, to confirm, first of all, um, the, the presence of uh, some type of amyploidies uh, in our embryos and uh, to still improve even further our accuracy toward the classification of meiotically derived amyploidies, for instance, but also to uh, reveal additional um, kind of uh, amyploidy uh, configuration of the embryos, such as the haploid or the triploid status, which is usually uh, not seen uh, using other technologies that uh, they use only of copy number information for classifying um, the embryos. On the top of this, I think adding genotyping as we did uh, is helping to, to, to control for some level of contaminations in our samples and also to have um, fingerprinting and to confirm the embryo identity uh, uh, during our uh, busy uh, IVF and PGT uh, laboratory. So it's a very good tool to have in our hands in order to increase uh, the accuracy and reliability of our, uh, of our assay. Now, the biggest challenge uh, going forward is for sure, I think, to understand uh, why still about half of the euploid embryos fail to implant. And uh, recently, uh, we, we did a very comprehensive systematic review and meta-analysis of the literature, for instance, in order to investigate what can be all the clinical factors that are linked to failures in, 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 in euploid embryo transfer cycles. We could identify some factor that may have an explanation or may be associated with uh, the implantation potential of euploid embryos, such as the BMI of the woman, uh, such as a blastocyst morphology, all those features that we can easily uh, obtain during in, in our records, in our IVF treatment cycles. However, many of them uh, provide a kind of, um, how can I say, prognosis without promises because uh, this cannot be, cannot be managed. I mean, there's nothing we can do, for instance, to change the age of the woman or in case we have two bad quality blastocysts, there's nothing we can do to improve uh, the quality, uh, the morphological quality of a blastocyst and, and, and boost our implantation rate. So I think uh, in the future, uh, in the at least in the genetic setting, what we should look at is to um, try to, to, to investigate on different type of genetic variation in our genome. Um, there, is, uh, there, are, there are some suggestions, uh, I mean, highlighting the role of de novo uh, single nucleotide variants and mutation uh, causing um, implantation failure or early uh, pregnancy loss that may explain part of, uh, of, this, of this failure or the failure of when, when we replace euploid embryos and also uh, going forward for sure uh, the study of some epigenetic, uh, some, I mean, epigenetic signature of the embryo can can reveal uh, some of the additional additional factor that is uh, related to implantation failure of euploid embryos. I mean, uh, I think there is really um, a lot to be done. I think that uh, we need uh, to further optimize the technologies in order to be uh, reliable when uh, scaled down to to the single cell level. Uh, but uh, this is uh, this is something that is improving, is improving constantly uh, going forward. And uh, yes, I'm confident that in the next year we will be able to uh, to add some additional genetic features that may be relevant for uh, for implantation, uh, for, for at least for improving the, the prediction upon uh, implantation of euploid embryos. 
there is of course another field uh, that is extremely attractive in my opinion that is those of trying to 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 explore also some genetic variation that are concealed in the um, parental genome that may be associated with some uh, sort of um, negative outcome uh, during IVF treatment cycles ranging from different uh, spectrum of um, infertility and the phenotype that we cannot visualize uh, without um, an IVF treatment cycle, such as having all immature oocytes or having all oocytes that um, uh, after fertilization fail to develop to the blaster stage or fail to, uh, to implant. Um, there is a bunch of research um, that was that is ongoing about this topic, about trying to underpin all the genes that are associated with these steps of um, early pre-implantation and post-implantation development. We know that in our genome, we still have uh, a lot to, to understand. Uh, for instance, recent data have shown that we have about 3,500 genome, genes in our genome that are lethal, and therefore uh, these genes are all good candidates uh, to be uh, to be studied and to do research on, uh, because they may they may explain part of the infertility or the early embryonic lethality that we see uh, following euploid embryo transfer. Um, I mean, I think it's uh, an exciting exciting period uh, where we really have uh, powerful technologies that are becoming more and more accessible and affordable uh, also to, to scale on uh, large uh, studies uh, with big data. And um, uh, therefore, yes, we, we, we are confident that the, the future will bring us some new tool to, to help our patients uh, succeeding. That is um, great, great to hear um, from the clinical perspective, <laughs> and um, definitely challenging, but also definitely very exciting. Um, Dr. Capablo, thank you so much for, for taking the time today. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of FertilityPod by EVRMA. We hope you enjoyed it and that you'll subscribe or leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. Join us next time for more cutting-edge research, talks with renowned speakers, and all things reproductive medicine. See you next time.